This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including eBooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. This is New Books and National Security, a channel on the New Books Network. I'm Beth Windish. I'm joined by Cynthia Miller Idris, author of the book Hate in the Homeland, The New Global Far Right. Cynthia Miller Idris is an award-winning author and scholar of extremism and youth radicalization. She directs the Polarization and Extremism Research and Innovation Lab in the Center for University Excellence at the American University in Washington, D.C., where she is also a professor in the School of Public Affairs and in the School of Education. Dr. Miller Idris is also Director of Strategy and Partnerships at the UK-based Center for Analysis of the Radical Right and serves on the International Advisory Board of the Center for Research on Extremism. A globally recognized expert on far-right youth, Dr. Miller Idris is the author, co-author, or co-editor of six books, including her new book we're talking about today, Hate in the Homeland. Cynthia, welcome to the show. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Can you tell us a little bit more about your background and the work of your lab, the Polarization and Extremism Research and Innovation Lab? Sure, I'd be happy to. Um, I mean, for many, many years, I was and even considered myself essentially to be uh, a subcultural studies scholar. I majored in German as an undergrad. I got a doctorate in sociology um, and did a dissertation originally in Poland and Germany, and then eventually um, just focused on Germany and then did two books based on German far-right youth, um, really was spending you know, large portions of my adult youth either living in Germany or going back and forth uh, and studying school-based responses to hate uh, and resurgent far-right extremism, in part because it's really the best place to study that in the world. The Germans had um, obviously have had a history uh, with the Holocaust and then faced an early resurgent far-right extremism in the 1980s and 1990s among youth and developed what is today kind of the best built out infrastructure, both I think on the monitoring and surveillance side, but for my purposes, even more importantly on the intervention and education and prevention side. So I was really interested in studying that and studying how teachers were grappling with it and um, ended up writing a book called The Extreme Gone Mainstream that was about the aesthetic transformation in far-right youth culture across Europe, um, away from the kind of racist skinhead look with the shaved head and the bomber jacket and the high black combat boots, uh, and the evolution into mainstream style clothing and brands that were selling deliberately coded clothing with symbols and iconography that represented far-right extremist views. And, and what that meant for schools, right? So how were schools dealing with dress codes or stadiums or 
um, other places that, you know, when people were showing up with, um, with this kind of coded messaging on their shirts, for example. And I turned that book in, uh, in final form just two months before Charlottesville happened. And so when Charlottesville happened and we saw, you know, scores of young men marching across a college campus with khakis and polo shirts and a real awareness of the mainstreaming of extremist style um, in terms of its aesthetic appearance, but also then the awareness about the normalization and mainstreaming of hate more generally in the U.S. became really clear. That kind of catapulted me into a lot of conversations nationally in the U.S. and at the policy levels that I had not been having because my work was really considered, again, even by myself, kind of fringe subcultural work about you know, youth in another country. Um, and so this book emerged from those three years really of conversations and talks. I gave dozens of presentations and briefings and testified before Congress and really just spent a lot of time explaining to people what was happening in global youth culture um, and, uh, and realized that maybe some different questions might help bring a new lens into how we could approach it. Um, you also asked about the lab, so I'll say, the lab, uh, the Polarization and Extremism Research and Innovation Lab launched last November um, at American University. I direct it. It's an incredible gift of an opportunity really to um, put into practice a lot of the ideas that I lay out in this book. So many of, in many ways, I see the book as an agenda setting book for the lab and for the field, I hope, in terms of um, giving us ideas about what kinds of interventions might we test. And our goal in the lab is to come up with these ideas for out-of-the-box interventions, get funding to test them, test them in the field, and then produce evidence that will be useful back to the field on what's working and what, what might move the needle at preventing people from entering or radicalizing within pathways toward violent extremism. And before we dive into the content of the book, I wanted to touch on what you mentioned in the preface that this, your process for writing this book was different and you completed it very quickly. Yes. Can you talk about how this was different from your previous efforts and how that affected your, your writing and how you took, took on this project? Yeah, sure. So my previous books, you know, academics by nature are sort of slow creatures and I am definitely in that camp. I wrote, I've written, you know, um, two other single-authored manuscripts and one co-authored manuscript, each of which took about a decade, um, including you know, long processes of getting funding to go to the field, to collect data, to gather hundreds of interviews and focus groups and ethnographic observation in field sites, which is the, the method that I use, and then coding, transcribing and coding and analyzing. I got fellowships to spend a year in Germany just to mull over sort of two of the chapters in my last book. Um, you know, so slow, methodical process of getting comments from people and, and, and then, you know, all the work that goes into them. And this book was written with a different sense of urgency in mind. I really felt it was motivated by a conversation I had with my editor. I had been writing a lot of op-eds, so I had done a lot of the thinking. Um, I had written a lot publicly and I'd given about 50 talks um, since that Extreme Gone Mainstream um, was turned in where I was articulating a lot of the ideas. So a lot of the writing had happened already and it was sort of pulling it together into, um, into a coherent form. And obviously I still had to do a lot of writing. I was up at 5 a.m. 
for many, many months on end writing. Um, but it, it was, I felt that much, I felt compelled to get it out. I really wanted these ideas to have an opportunity to enter the public conversation and potentially change, I hope, I mean, it sounds overly ambitious, um, but, you know, maybe have a, an opportunity to change some of the ways that we approach um, thinking about what's happening, where it's happening, and how we might intervene differently. And you mentioned Charlottesville, and I think for a lot of folks before that, there was an idea that this kind of extremism looked a certain way or that it would be recognizable. And there's a lot of different terms we're hearing in the news about different types of groups or things like the alt-right, white supremacists, or even recently militias. And you discussed terminology in the very beginning. So I wanted to ask if you could help us understand the scope of what you're talking about when you say the far right. Yeah, it's a great question because the, the, the terminology is really difficult, both within this country and globally, because there's no unified set of terms that everybody agrees on to describe the phenomena that everybody recognizes nonetheless as a problem. Um, so I call in the book, and I have called it also elsewhere, the, the term the far right, the best bad term we have available to describe this spectrum of groups and ideologies that um, that combines some, some range of, of four different kinds of components. So the first are anti-democratic beliefs, a set of beliefs that either promote authoritarianism or refuse to protect minority rights or infringe on freedoms like freedoms of the press or of the right to gather. Um, that then in secondly set up hierarchies among groups of people. So um, that creates superiority and inferiority. So we have, I would cast, cast in that group, um, not just white supremacy, but also male supremacy, Christian supremacy, different kinds of majority group supremacy over other groups in ways that also then dehumanize those groups. So there's the dehumanization um, of individuals who are deemed to be in the inferior groups, whether that's through misogyny or through racism, um, through Islamophobia, right, through anti-Semitism, through different kinds of forms that come in there through that um, dehumanization and discrimination of, but that's rooted in a kind of superiority and inferiority and hierarchies across groups. The third element, it has to do with um, kind of conspiracies and, um, and, and fantastical ideas about restoration usually. And so a lot of these groups have very fantasies or mythological ideas about a kind of golden era or a better time, um, whether that's a restoration of a caliphate, let's say, in that sense, it's very similar to Islamist extremism, but in this case, typically restoration of white civilization, um, of male domination, of a time when things were simpler. And you hear a lot of language that is you know, conspiracy oriented around a great replacement, that there's some kind of orchestrated attempt to um, replace white civilizations with, um, with, uh, you know, with multicultural ones um, at the expense of those white civilizations, let's say, in a way that produces dire, a dire sense of threat. So the threat there is a really strong component of that conspiracy theory and those fantasies. And then the fourth component is mobilization of violence. And on the far fringes of these groups, violence is seen not only as um, a means to an end, but or a, or a 
you know, we're willing to do it, but actually as a desired goal in and of itself. So you have accelerationist groups, for example, who believe that um, we should be using or they should be using violence in order to bring about the downfall of all systems. Um, so those are kind of the four components that I would say in some combination, not all groups across the spectrum share them, but they all share some overlap. And within the far right spectrum, what you have are the majority of groups, statistically speaking, in the US and elsewhere that make up the far right are white supremacist extremist groups. But there are also then um, anti-government groups, as we've seen in the US this fall, that anti-government extremist spectrum has grown um, and has become more mobilized under the COVID-19 conditions. Uh, and sometimes anti-government and the white supremacist groups overlap. Um, so the anti-government groups include these patriot militias, but also include sovereign citizens, seditionist groups, people who don't recognize the authority of the United States as a legitimate government or claim that they should be calling for civil war or, um, or resisting supposed government tyranny. And then we also have groups within the far right spectrum that we call kind of um, single issue extremists, typically on the anti-abortion um, violent fringe and violent extremists in that area as well as male supremacist and um, misogynist groups that enact deliberate um, terrorist violence against women. And we have seen that in um, places like a yoga studio and a sorority in California, as well as in a van attack in Toronto in recent years with high numbers of fatalities. So there's this, there's this whole range. Um, and not all of these groups are officially espousing violent not all of the groups agree on all components. You have anti-government groups who, you know, claim they are not, have nothing to do with white supremacists. You have, um, you know, groups that are that are fixated on one particular area like abortion and are not involved in the rest of the spectrum. But that's that's what makes up that spectrum. Where it gets confusing is that, um, you know, our government um, in the U.S. kind of first of all, has this distinction between domestic terrorism and international terrorism, which gets confusing when it relates to something like um, white supremacist extremism, which is a truly global movement and not just a domestic one, but also because other, other countries use different terms to refer to the same phenomenon. So in Germany, they use right-wing extremism and right-wing radicalism, which are legally distinct terms. Um, in other places, they might use... Um, you know, extremist right wing. Um, so you have different kinds of, of ways of framing it. And then the last thing I'll say about that is just because we're also seeing increasing intersections with um, that kind of fragment the whole idea of a left and right spectrum uh, so that, you know, the terrorists in Christchurch and El Paso, for example, both cited what we call eco-fascist justifications for their terrorist violence um, or environmental claims about climate change as part of the justification for reducing immigration or closing borders to protect and secure the territory and space of their countries for white people. Um, that's, you know, you get into some messiness there with like a, a set of ideas about the environment and climate change, which might traditionally be a part of leftist groups, um, ideologies, then being used to mobilize violence on the far right. So I think we are gonna see and have seen some fragmentation and strange coalitions forming between anti-vaxxers and anti-government extremists, for example, that will continue to grow over the coming year um, in ways that I hope somebody out there can tackle and help us really 
even globally with the help of the UN, um, for example, come up with a classification system and an agreed upon set of terminology that allows us to track these movements in more defined ways. Um, because I think that's, it really does hurt our ability to prevent, interrupt, surveil, monitor, and disrupt plots and violence when we have kind of some different understandings about how it should be understood. And I wanted to ask you about that a little bit more about that global nature, because you you make a point of calling it the global far right in the title. And while this year we saw the State Department designate uh, a white supremacist group for the first time as, as a terrorist group, the Russian Imperial Front, how well do you think the interconnectedness and global nature of this threat is understood? I think the global interconnectedness and is um, is the understandings of that is improving, but it's you know we're hurt by these definitions first of all that not only in the U.S. but also across the U.N. system, um, you know, has basically considered white supremacist extremism to be a problem, a domestic problem of member states. Um, and a, a problem, I mean, the definition of it in the U.S. as a domestic terror uh, is that it's motivated by domestic concerns such as race. And so when you think of it that way from the very definition, it's harder, I think, to see the fact that these, you know, in multiple levels, these groups and individuals are in- interconnected. They share tactics. They share manifestos. They share bomb-making plans. We have over 17,000 people from around the world who've traveled to the Ukraine to fight, um, mostly for white supremacist groups, where they get training um, and mentoring. They crowdsource funding across nations. They live stream attacks. They call each other saints and disciples. You know, they they um, communicate globally. They share global youth culture. Um, and even, you know, not even limited within the, you know, within the white extremist fringe, but um, white supremacist fringe, you have um, hardcore white supremacist extremists who regularly share Islamic State and Al-Qaeda bomb-making materials, propaganda, violent imagery within their chat rooms. So they're taking inspiration from other global terrorist acts. And we have seen that kind of reciprocal violence occur as well in the mobilization of one broad global extremist movement in the white supremacist extremist side against um, Islamist extremist mobilization and ideologies. So I think it would help us a lot if we could understand the global nature of it and the ways in which they are, um, you know, on multiple levels tactically in terms of their communication and fundraising and sharing of ideology and in the motivation beyond, you know, through this great replacement conspiracy that mobilizes violence, um, it's just not limited in any way by national borders. It's truly a global phenomenon. And you talk about the role of places and, and locations in the first part of the book, both actual physical places and idealized future states. Can you talk more about the role of homeland and, and the idea of places in radicalization? Yeah, I think, you know, one of the things that I find really fascinating about this, and and it's probably one of the reasons why we have come to see this as, you know, why there's been such a reluctance to understand it as globally is because within each country um, where white supremacist extremism exists, a lot of their 
a lot of the ideology and even the emotional reasoning behind it is tied very closely to ideas about territory, belonging, and ownership over the land. And this dates all the way back at least to Hitler and his idea of blood and soil, right? This idea that there's like a genetic connection to the land. And um, so you see this in every far right extreme, in every white supremacist extremists sort of, um, you know, set of ideas in any given place. There are these fantastical ideas or about territory. So in, in Germany, it's it's very strongly linked to the idea that the Germanic tribes had their origins in the Nordic tribes who originally were Aryan. That's a myth, but it is this sort of mythological fantasy. And it's the reason why Hitler and the Nazis used Nordic symbols, the runic symbols, as the insignia for the SS and for other um, divisions within the Nazi troops. Um, and so the swastika itself was a Nordic symbol, um, you know, and so you'll, you'll see those kinds of things crop up again and again. And in the, and then, you know, the U.S., it comes up in, on the one hand, in the sort of obsession among white supremacist groups with creating a white ethnostate, a designated sort of protected territory, but even other racial ethnic ethnostates, this idea that racial groups should be separated by geography. And, you know, I think part of why I was, why I wanted to dig into that is because it, it just strikes me as such a bizarre, you know, thing to claim. Like, why is it that one set of people belongs to a set of territory in some particular way? And then these ideas about borders and immigration, who should be allowed in the country, who belongs to the country, who is entitled to be in this country, all come from that. And the really ironic and interesting part about it in the American context, of course, is that, you know, nobody who's espousing these views essentially can claim original ethnic origins to this territory because it was Native American. And um, instead of that being, uh, you know, a, a stumbling block for, for people in these movements, they actually use it as a justification for what they're doing or what they espouse. And so you'll see that in manifestos, but also in political campaigns in Europe where they'll say, you know, white people are at risk of becoming like Native Americans are forced onto Native American reservations and their space will be infringed on and they will, and it, you know, so it's a cautionary tale. Like it happened before and this is what's happening now. So comparing modern immigration to the kind of, um, you know, the the genocide of, of, um, of Native Americans after European arrival on, on the continent. And so that's where you get the language of white genocide and where that comes from is the same kind of, um, of, of ideas. And so it's, you know, it's, it has a logic to it, but it also is, I think, really firmly rooted in these, um, kind of emotional ideas about belonging and territory and entitlement and who is entitled to, to own this land and who's not in ways that we also saw, of course, with African-American, you know, post-slavery Jim Crow laws and housing and mortgage laws. I mean, these things have continued in structural ways in the U.S. as well, but they very much animate the ideas of white supremacist extremists in terms of what they believe they're entitled to and how they how they should be, um, you know, allowed to own and belong to certain territory because of their race. And you go into some depth on the role of anti-immigrant messages, and I I think this is really useful to see how multiple narratives have been 
woven together. And you argue that some extreme ideas have been normalized or mainstreamed. Can you talk more about how this happens and how has immigration been an entry point to further extreme thought? Yeah. So it's really interesting. There's this concept that I talk about in the book called the Overton window, which is essentially uh, a metaphor for the, you know, the ideas, like if ideas exist on the political spectrum, um, then, you know, there's a, there's a, a window of ideas within that spectrum that are acceptable to the public at any given time. And that's called the Overton window. And so the example that's often used is, um, one about like school attendance, right? So if there's a range of acceptable ideas about school attendance that range from parents should be allowed to decide if their kids go to school at all to the state should, you know, make attendance in school mandatory for every child, right? And there's so range of 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 ideas in between that have who's allowed to homeschool or what are, you know, how many days a year should should school be required for how many years? At what point can children opt out and decide themselves that they want to drop out as teenagers, right? So there's all these range of acceptable ideas. And that window moves around over time. And sometimes it moves around because of deliberate pushes from grassroots movements. And this happens on the left and it happens on the right. So it's how you see things like um, same, same uh, sex marriage uh, legality moving into the Overton window after many years of being out of the Overton window, for example. And the same thing is true of anti-immigration politics and policies. And so one of the things I trace in the book is, you know, not just where are the spaces where ideas um, become, you know, where extreme ideas become, are encountered for the first time, but how do they actually become normalized and mainstreamed? And one of the ways that that happens is through a populist electoral rhetoric that has positioned ordinary people against elites, but then extends that framing. And that's been a very popular framing in populist elections, um, not just in the US, but across Europe and in Brazil and India and other places over the last decade. But they've extended that kind of ordinary people against the bad elite or the nefarious elite to also be the kind of purity of the people against ethnic others, including immigrants. And that sort of framing has set up an anti-immigration and and opened the door for many more anti-immigration sentiments to kind of creep into the Overton window. And so that's what I talk about in that chapter is how we get the normalization of more anti-immigration language happening um, through political campaigns and legislation and ideas about like a Muslim ban or a border wall or whatever that is here or in, or in Europe around the refugee crisis, for example, in 2015. And that kind of rhetoric helped carry a lot of ideas about immigrants into the mainstream in ways that then also, because they were accompanied sometimes with um, very negative language, incendiary language, um, metaphors, and dehumanizing kinds of um, ideas about, you know, uh, illness or invasions or conspiracies about funding for migrant caravans, right? All of those kinds of things helped carry some of these ideas into the mainstream in ways that make them seem more normal and and fit within the Overton window of acceptable public policy ideas. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it... a real POS. You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. 
Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. As I was reading the book, too, it made me think of um, a quote from the book, Thinking Fast and Slow, uh, that says, a reliable way to make people believe in falsehoods is frequent repetition because familiarity is not easily distinguished from truth. Authoritarian institutions and marketers have always known this fact. And um, you talk about both both the uh, repetition and normalization, and you talk about marketing and the commercial the, the role of commercialization and products and communities that are surrounding some of this extremism. What role do these multiple multiple ecosystems play in? making extremism harder to maybe um, recognize? And how do you advise the ordinary people to think critically about these ideas, given that we have these um, these biases and, and the normalization of some potentially dangerous um, ideological hooks that could bring people into this? Yeah, it's a really great question. I mean, I think it's really important for people to try to be um, critical and informed consumers of um, social media and media in general, and so one of the things we know is that, um, uh, and this this actually comes you know comes from other scholarship on conspiracy theories, um, and uh, that that shows that sort of that I cite in the book, but it shows that uh, a lot of the validation of kind of ideas today happens through kind of retweets, right? And um, and likes. And so it's almost like the number of people who like something or retweet it makes it seem more valid, right? If like, oh, that, that must have um, a lot of authority if it's been liked, you know, 25,000 times or something. And so um, I think being skeptical of that and being aware that just circulation of ideas doesn't make them more valid um, is is a helpful kind of a thing. And, and that amplification of conspiracy theories um, without providing evidence of, you know, kind of fact checking also can be difficult and that, you know, can, can help carry those ideas into the mainstream. This is a challenge for journalists, I think as well, who cover things like QAnon. Um, how do you, how do you talk about QAnon without actually like furthering the conspiracy theory behind it? Um, but on the aesthetic side, you know, I think this happens so unconsciously and it's really important to be aware of it for people that, um, I think especially for a lot of Americans who had come to think of white supremacist extremism as coming in an aesthetic package that had a Ku Klux Klan hood or an Aryan Brotherhood prison gang tattoo or was a backwoods militia, um, you know, and camouflage uh, and weaponry and face paint, right? Like that, that the, the khakis and polo shirts marching across a college campus were shocking. And, and, and that, was deliberate and coordinated, right? And so we know that it was a strategic move on the part of the far right, that some of this evolved organically, but it's not a coincidence that all these guys show up looking, you know, pretty much the same in these pressed khakis and polo shirts. It was a deliberate call over social media that went out to show up looking respectable. And the reasoning behind that was that people would be more willing to listen to the ideas if, if they come, you know, in a package that seems more, acceptable. And I think that's a really important thing for people to understand that um, it's, it is harder for Americans or maybe for anybody in the globe to recognize the ideas as extreme when they come in an aesthetic package that looks more like, you know, a kid next door than like the kind of neo-Nazi of their imagination. And 
And so trying to separate the ideas from the way that they're being communicated or conveyed and that kind of marketing and branding and social image construction of extreme ideas that softens them, I think is one of the most dangerous and nefarious aspects of this. And that's some of what we're seeing in the kind of, um, even in the, the stuff that has happened even since I wrote the book on Instagram, um, the, you know, the, the image, the very rich images um, on, on white supremacist accounts that are kind of aesthetically beautiful. Um, it's commonly like a, a blonde woman with a braid standing in a field of wheat, you know, um, that like there's this kind of aesthetic um, iconography that comes with it, but that is then layered over with messages about whiteness or about defense, um, defense of land, of nation, of people, of race. And, and I think um, it's really important to kind of understand how that is kind of manipulative and works on people who have, who maybe have more trouble if they had an image in their head of what, um, what extreme ideas must look like to kind of, it might take longer for people to recognize the extreme nature of the ideas. And you do a lot of work with um, youth and youth culture. Do you see generational divides in the far right movement in terms of what um, is embraced by younger people versus maybe people who've been in the movement longer or even maybe people coming to the movement at an older age? Yeah, definitely. I mean, part of it is that a younger generation is just so much more image savvy already, right? I mean, it's a... Um, if you're a digital native, right, you're growing up with smartphones with cameras on them all the time. And the idea that, you know, image sharing sites and social media, TikTok video sites, you know, where you're just communicating in, in short ways, but also with wit and humor and satire and irony and a lot of these kinds of um, ways of communicating online that have been then weaponized by the far right um, to kind of encourage youth or, you know, draw youth in by positioning themselves as like countercultural to the mainstream who just can't take a joke, right? There's a lot of that kind of going on and that happens primarily in the younger generation. Um, and I think the younger generation is also compared to an older generation, just obviously more, more internet savvy, more likely to use um, video platforms to communicate ideas, more likely to understand how to crowdsource funding or use cryptocurrencies to mobilize support for, you know, protest actions like putting a boat in the middle of the Mediterranean to block migrants um, or refugees as has happened, right, by far-right groups. So those kinds of things are, I think, um, very much driven by, by not just youth culture, but youth engagement um, in, in, in a whole ecosystem of online um, communication and platforms that older generations are just either slower to use or haven't really encountered that much at all. So I think that's that's probably the biggest difference. Um, I would say, you know, folks who are coming in at, um, you know, one thing like the anti-government extremists um, are at least anecdotally, I think we'd have to look into the data for this, but anecdotally a little bit older um, than the, the kind of youth-driven online subculture in the white supremacist fringe. And so that's, that is one, um, you know, one indicator that age might affect uh, different parts of the far right spectrum differently in terms of mobilizing people and the issues that matter to them. And so, you know, maybe that these anti-government extremists are, 
who are really concerned about kind of government tyranny are um, are mobilized in a different way than than younger youth who are mobilized into a kind of a global white supremacist ideologies. Um, but I think that's still an empirical question. And I would say the only other thing about youth is that, um, you know, I'm I'm most interested in youth because a I think they're most reachable still. Um, the you know the younger someone is, the more likely they are to continually to be experimenting with and changing their identity um, to be higher, you know, at a higher risk of, of um, engaging in risky behavior or experimentation. And so they're also at a moment when they can be reached, um, often are still in more formal school systems where there's more interaction with teachers and faculty or school counselors who might be you know, able to reach them and recognize red flags and warning signs. But they are also at a greater risk of engaging in violence and at recidivism to violence, even if they were already arrested, um, youth are more likely to go back to violent lifestyles than our older um, uh, people who've been arrested for violent for, for terrorist violence. So I think those are kind of they're 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 both more reachable and I think um, important for that reason, but also at greater risk. I'd like to go back to what you mentioned earlier about the role of satire in the movement. Because we're, we're seeing the use of humor to transmit uh, extremist ideology being very effective. And in some cases, it's allowed individuals to make threats and then shrug those violent messages off as, as a joke. Mm -hmm. What can be done to combat this type of hate speech? Yeah, that is it's a really important question because I think um, the... The use of humor and satire and wit and irony and all of these kinds of um, modes of, of communication have done a couple of things. Like you said, they one, they allow this plausible deniability or even kind of strategic uncertainty about, about what, what this communication means so that somebody can always say like, oh, I just meant that as a joke. And that's also done on things like in games, like online games like Minecraft or something where you'll have um, individuals who are like plotting to blow up a bridge or something, but then it's only in Minecraft. So it can't actually be, you know, it's not a prosecute, you know, it's, it can't, it's not a potentially criminal offense if it's, or, you know, I, I mean, I can't speak to the legal um, definition of it, but it's harder to, I would say it's, it's easier for them to, to sort of claim that this was just, I was talking about blowing it up in Minecraft, the game, right. Instead of actually, potentially plotting something outside of the game. So it, it allows this, um, strategically allows a kind of plausible deniability, but it also, I think, carries, you know, it, it desensitizes and dehumanizes the consumers of those jokes and memes. Um, you see this a lot with memes, with where there's, you know, memes themselves are a whole kind of youth cultural art form in their, in their own way of communicating, but they you know, when they carry dehumanizing ideas, as these far-right extremist memes often do, racist, misogynistic, you know, um, horrific memes that compare people to animals or that, you know, um, are, are just, um, you know, sexualized images of women, um, that they, they, you repeatedly look at these and it can kind of desensitize and dehumanize populations all in the context of a joke. So we've seen this a lot with, with kind of um, memes about the Holocaust where there'll be jokes, you know, terrible jokes, like comparing, you know, the Holocaust to putting a pizza in an oven, but then somebody is, is, um, you know, a teenager 
would be putting a pizza in the oven and repeat that joke, right? This is something that I know happened to someone I know. And, and you know, then says, oh, when confronted with it, like, oh, it's just a joke. Everybody says it, right? So there's this kind of like, stop overreacting, stop being a triggered snowflake. Um, it's just a joke that people say, and you're too old and you don't get it. And um, that I think has been a really dangerous weaponization and a way of dehumanizing, drawing people in, making them seem like they're the counterculture and, um, and, and kind of channeling and carrying really dangerous ideas about superiority and inferiority between groups through jokes, right? And making light of past atrocities like the Holocaust. So, you know, I think one of the things about humor is you can't really combat it very well with humor. I mean, without, you know, with, with just straight kind of, um, you know, challenges because you're just, you position, it positions the, the counter narrative as not being able to take a joke. Um, so some of the more effective strategies, I think, have been ones that deploy humor against the far right. So we have seen a really effective strategy in Germany where there was a protest march organized by neo-Nazis in an anti-racist group instead of doing what they traditionally had done, which was just protest the protest march, um, you know, in kind of a, what could turn into a violent clash between groups, they, they turned it into a walkathon and they raised money. They got pledges online for however many steps, you know, uh, each person took in that protest in that neo-Nazi march that these people would donate money um, to an anti-racist uh, to anti-racist organizations in the area. And then they stood alongside the march with signs that said things like, thank you, you've raised 5,000 euros. And then, you know, a little while down the road, you've raised 10,000 euros for the anti-racist coalition. And then you've raised 50,000 euros. And so it kind of befuddled the group because then they're like, uh, what do we do? Do we keep marching? And like, and they did actually raise like a fair amount of money for anti-racist organizations in that town but it also was just a great strategy at disrupting without violence, you know, by kind of turning the tables on it. Um, and there have been a couple of effective strategies like that in Germany that have tried to use humor or satire or just creative disruption ideas that are not, um, you know, instead of the kind of traditional trying to just counter straight, straightforward. So I think, you know, we're in our lab also looking into the use of um, humor and the ways in which humor and satire might be turned against these kinds of things um, as a strategy to draw young people into other kinds of approaches. That example you just talked about too, where we see things like this play out where there's protests and then counter protests. And, and it sounds like this group had taken another, another route. Um, you talk about how that kind of cycle of conflict we're seeing it in communities and, and college campuses too. Mm -hmm. How does that kind of conflict and the the buzz around those protests and controversial speakers play into the far right movement's goals? Yeah, one of the things that I wanted to you know make clear in this book is that you know each one of these chapters, the examples that I chose, are to show how you know, through different kinds of spaces, the far right mobilizes, you know, cultural capacity, um, like through clothing or through food or through other kinds of channels, music, uh, but also, you know, physical capacity through training and mixed martial arts or combat sports, and then also intellectual capacity through higher ed and the creation. So there's two different, a few, th few different things happening in the higher ed space. One is attacks on higher ed, particularly in the U.S., 
Um, and you'll see this regularly sort of attacks on higher ed as a leftist space, as a culturally Marxist space. That's the conspiracy theory that argues um, that higher ed is being used, you know, as to create propaganda or indoctrinate youth with leftist ideas, for example, but also as a space of provocation. And I think this is where we see, um, you know, at least in the first, so the ADL has documented, the Anti-Defamation League has documented the, you know, rapidly growing circulation of old school paper flyers with white supremacist propaganda on them, you know, a very, um, you know, old technique that's not internet savvy necessarily, except that they usually have a URL on them to kind of direct people to a site where they can get more information. But um, these now today, they they have started to proliferate in more public spaces like parks or elsewhere, um, town squares. But in the beginning, in the beginning of this escalation over the last few years, they were really targeting college campuses and hundreds of instance, uh, instances of white supremacist propaganda, paper flyers across campus, and anti-immigration ones, misogynist ones, white supremacist ones, flyers. And a lot of this was, you know, it's trying to provoke, trying to get interest, trying to get people to check out the URLs. Um, these provocative speaker tours that we've had, we're trying to generate and provoke um, both challenge kind of mainstream or, or um, the liberal you know, student body on campuses, but also um, create buzz, create national media, get people um, interested in the ideas. And so one of the things I think it's really important for students to be aware of is the potential for them to be used you know, kind of as pawns by outside groups um, because they have to be hosted by student groups on campus. So, you know, students have the right to, as groups, to invite who they want to speak. But I think it's always good for students to be aware that outside groups might be, on, you know, on any side of the ideological spectrum, an outside group might have its own interest in being um, invited as a speaker to a college campus where they can get, you know, broad national attention and audiences uh, in ways that maybe aren't necessarily in the student group's interest, but are really in somebody else's interest. And I think overall, the theme of a lot of the work that I'm doing and that I hope the book, um, you know, helps disentangle is this issue about online manipulation and propaganda and understanding, you know, how misinformation, disinformation or propaganda or scapegoating might be serving someone else's interests and being kind of a little more media savvy about, about being aware how those presentations of aesthetic choices and clothing or um, provocative speakers on campus are really designed to manipulate you into manipulate participants or viewers or observers into something that is, you know, in somebody else's interest. And that on that topic, I want to ask, there's so much to cover in this book. And I know we've we've got to speak with you for some time. Um, What, you know, what do you what what's next? Where do we go from here? What recommendations do you have to help us counter this threat? And um, both I guess at the at the policymaker level, but um, as you were speaking before, what can individuals do? Yeah, well, the one of the most important things I think is media literacy, and so you know, really being aware. I think we have, you know, now have a generation of young people who are pretty aware of how online of how to protect themselves against online predators, of how to protect you know how to protect their digital privacy and be decent citizens online, for example, those kinds of things they're getting information on, but they really do not get um, any training in kind of digital communications classes or certainly not enough on issues of misinformation and disinformation, 
conspiracy theories, propaganda, what happens when you encounter this kind of attempts to persuade you online toward extremist ideas and how would you recognize it? How, how would you understand? You know, one of the things that we in our lab, um, you know, model our work off of is public health research that has shown, for example, that after years and years, decades really of, of public health efforts, you know, through health education classes to get young people to make healthy eating choices by telling them about the long-term consequences of poor eating habits for their bodies, right? That had no effect, right? All the years of health classes talking about healthy eating habits really didn't change behavioral choices by young people. But then research found that actually, if you show young people how they are being manipulated by fast food advertisements that are just trying against their own best interests to put, you know, to profit from, from young people's choices behaviorally, that information changed their behavior. And what was interesting is it changed the behavior more for boys than for girls. Boys who learned about the way that fast food um, companies were targeting adolescents to purchase food that was unhealthy, um, they changed their behavior more and made healthier eating choices. So the lesson we take is that nobody likes to figure out or learn that they're being manipulated. And if you can think about how we can, you know, so how can we design interventions that would inoculate people so that when they encounter this, um, you know, scapegoating or propaganda or conspiracy theories online, they recognize it for what it is and don't get drawn into kind of that manipulation. I think that would be kind of an immunization sort of approach to helping the public, helping all young people be better informed consumers of the misinformation that they might encounter when they get out there in the world. So I think our approach is to say, this isn't just, you know, and this is a metaphor I've been using for a long time, which, which sounds stranger now in the pandemic, but, you know, we can't treat white supremacist extremism as just, you know, like a, as if it's a cancerous set of cells, like a tumor, a bad, you know, set of cells that can be isolated and cut out of society. If we can just monitor it correctly, it acts much more like a contagious virus and one that everybody has to be inoculated against because of the way it spreads, particularly online and among youth. And when you look at it that way, it's something that everyone has to be protected against. And so, you know, our work um, is, you know, in the lab designed to think about where are all the spaces and places that we could reach young people, but also the adults that they spend time with and helping people be more aware of the risks and better understand how to build resilience and reduce vulnerabilities to that uh, persuasive rhetoric. Well, Cynthia, we've taken up a lot of your time, but before we let you go, would you mind sharing what you're working on now? Sure. So, um, you know, I, I finished the book uh, and turned it in to start the production process in February, and the lab had launched the Polarization and Extremism Research and Innovation Lab, or PERIL, had launched just a few months before. And so we have been busy in a number of partnerships with um, funders, with external funders, with some research studies in many ways um, that are that where the book is kind of the agenda setting um, book for the lab that is saying like, let's start testing. What would it look like to test an intervention in a mixed martial arts space or to test, to really assess what's happening on the social media channels in terms of cooking and wellness and lifestyle channels incorporating white supremacist extremist content into them. Um, what would it look like to study and work with partners in the fashion world? So we're, you know, we're pursuing a bunch of different projects in those areas um, and have released a couple of 
uh, and a lot of those projects are visual. I think um, counting on kind of, uh, you know, coming from the idea that, that, that youth is such a, vis- this, this generation is just so visually oriented. So we released um, an animated video on the Boogaloo movement with the Bertelsmann Foundation. Uh, we are about to release a um, education guide to accompany that um, Boogaloo video. And we just got approval to um, start the an impact study of it to see whether an animated video, an 11 minute animated video could will change the public's idea about um, how misinformation might contribute to extremist radicalization or mobilization into Patriot militia groups um, or groups like the Boogaloo. So we have, um, we have those three components kind of launching. So uh, hopefully we'll have some evidence about the use of animation and how that works. Um, and we have a number of other projects uh, including a partnership with the Southern Poverty Law Center to produce a series of guides and toolkits for mental health professionals, for teachers, for principals, for educators, for parents, um, to help improve their awareness of risk and, and strategies to, to change the narrative and build some resilience among young people. So we're busy. Uh, I encourage people to check out everything at our website, which is www.american.edu backslash peril, P-E-R-I-L, um, all of the things that we produce are free to the public. Um, we have a number of webinars on our events tabs that people can follow and um, join in for uh, that bring together experts to discuss a lot of this and um, would love for people to follow along. Well, thanks for being on the show today. Thank you for having me. It's been great to talk about this. Hate in the Homeland, the new global far right by Cynthia Miller Idris is available now from Princeton University Press. Thanks for listening to New Books in National Security, a podcast channel on the New Books Network.